This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Creating a Culture of Belonging. In the first half, Thomas A. Holmo and Patrick Kieron share their addresses, Brotherly Love and a More Wonderful World. Then in the second half, Philip D. Rash speaks on Looking to the Margins, Creating Belonging. My dear brothers and sisters, do we really mean what we're saying when we address each other as brothers and sister? This is a rather peculiar title for many people not familiar with our Mormon culture. Names such as Brother Jim or Sister Smith are used fondly and respectfully when addressing each other to express our kinship in the family of God. Why do we use this affectionate title? When I was a small boy growing up, my older brother was bigger than life to me. He was nine years older than me and the best player on every team he played on. He always looked out for his little brother and spent many hours teaching me the skills of various sports. Since we shared a bedroom, much to his chagrin, I oftentimes would hear him awake late at night and slip out to the backyard to lift weights to get stronger. I spent many nights peering out the window at this example of extra effort and dreamed that one day I could be like him. He truly was and still remains a great brother. He continues to influence my life for good as my big brother. Elder Henry B. Eyring teaches us, quote, Your responsibility is to touch people so they will make the right choices that will take them towards eternal life. And eternal life is the greatest gift of God. Perhaps one of the more thought-provoking questions asked in the scriptures is the one asked by Cain when questioned by the Lord on the whereabouts of his brother Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain had slain his younger brother because God had accepted Abel's offering and rejected his. Cain's words have come to symbolize man's unwillingness to accept responsibility for the welfare of his brother on the earth. In our present-day situations, we would all do well as children of our Heavenly Father to contemplate our answer to that same question, Am I my brother's keeper? To be able to answer in the affirmative, Yes, I am my brother's keeper, we must be obedient to the command given us by Jesus when He said, and I quote, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Just how do we determine who our brothers and sisters are? The Apostle Paul stated on Mars Hill that God hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. All mankind have chosen to come to this earth in obedience to the plan of salvation and are indeed the sons and daughters of God and thus brothers and sisters in His heavenly family. We catch a further glimpse of who Jesus considers His brothers and sisters from this exchange found in Matthew. While He had yet talked to the people, behold, His mother and His brethren stood without, desiring to speak to Him. Then one said to Him, Behold, Thy mother and Thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with Thee. But He answered and said unto him that told Him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand, 
towards his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. The hopeful result of this knowledge of our heavenly family is described by Paul in his letter to the Romans. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Furthermore, we are instructed in Timothy to rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brothers, the elder women as mothers, the younger sisters, all with purity. Brothers and sisters, love one another. Serve each other. I would think that most of you here today have followed and accept the premise of brotherhood and sisterhood as taught from the scriptures. The issue is not so much that you don't accept a stranger as a brother or sister as much as it is you simply have not conditioned yourself to serve them. Serving those who we love and who love us, those who think like us or look like us, or speak like us, or even worship like us, is good. However, we must learn to reach out to those we don't know, to the discarded, the sick, those less fortunate, the inflicted, the lonely, and those we don't necessarily understand. The story of the dramatic rescue of the members of the Martin and Willie Hancock companies, a group of our early pioneer saints trapped, frozen on the plains, is one that inspires me today to listen for the call to action and go. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland reminds us that being our brother's keeper is a theme we need oft remember. Quoting from Elder Holland's most recent General Conference address, he states, As surely as the rescue of those in need was the General Conference theme of October 1856, so too is it the theme of this conference and the last conference and the one to come next spring. They can only be rescued by those who have more and know more and can help more. And don't worry asking, where are they? They are everywhere, on our right and on our left, in our neighborhoods and in the marketplace, in every community and nation of this world. Take your team of wagons, Load it up with your love, your testimony, a spiritual sack of flour, then drive in any direction. The Lord will lead you to those in need if you will but embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. President Thomas S. Monson, speaking on our call to service, stated, This is the service that counts, the service to which all of us have been called, the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Along your pathway of life, you will observe that you are not the only traveler. There are others who need your help. There are feet to steady, hands to grasp, minds to encourage, hearts to inspire, and souls to save." Unquote. Prophet Joseph Smith, oft referred to by people of his day as Brother Joseph, was the epitome of selflessness and reached out to strangers in many ways to assist them and bless their lives. We need not look far to find excellent examples of brotherly and sisterly love. The Lord's chosen servants of today emulate their predecessors and shine a light on all that is good and devote their life to serving others. 
A story is told of a man having a conversation with the Lord one day when he said, Lord, I would like to know what heaven and hell are like. The Lord led the man to two doors. He opened one of the doors, and the man looked in. In the middle of the room was a large round table. In the middle of the table was a large pot of stew, which smelled delicious and made the man's mouth water. The people sitting around the table were thin and sickly. They appeared to be famished. They were holding spoons with very long handles that were strapped to their arms, and each found it possible to reach into the pot of stew and take a spoonful. But because the handle was longer than their arms, they could not get the spoons back into their mouths. The man shuddered at the sight of their misery and suffering. The Lord said, You have seen hell. They went to the next room and opened the door. It was exactly the same as the first one. There was the large round table with the large pot of stew, which made the man's mouth water. The people were equipped with the same long-handled spoons strapped to their arms, but the people there were well-nourished and plump, laughing and talking. The man said, I don't understand. It is simple, said the Lord. It requires but one skill. You see, they have learned to feed each other, while the greedy think only of themselves. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. wondered why man does not treat each other like brothers and sisters. Quoting Dr. King, When we look at modern man, we have to face the fact that modern man suffers from a kind of poverty of the spirit, which stands in glaring contrast to the scientific and technological abundance. We've learned to fly the air like birds. We've learned to swim the seas like fish. And yet, we haven't learned to walk the earth as brothers and sisters. I believe Dr. King would be pleased with the response from people all over the world to our brothers and sisters in Indonesia who were suffering from the devastation of last year's tsunami. Millions of people came to the aids of brothers and sisters they didn't even know, but acted on the impression to love our neighbors as ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the business of making a living, raising a family, receiving an education, and any other worthy endeavor we are involved in truly tests how we would answer the question, Am I my brother's keeper? God works miracles in the lives of His children through the Christ-like service rendered by their brothers and sisters. A warm smile, a friendly greeting, a door held open, any good deed, however simple it may be, can turn a bad day into a good one. I enjoy singing the words of a favorite church hymn. Have I done any good in the world today? Have I helped anyone in need? Have I cheered up the sad and made someone feel glad? If not, I have failed indeed. It will be a long time before I forget the special kindness expressed by my friend Verl Rasband, an older gentleman who attended my ward. Verl served well in many capacities throughout his life and still finds the time and makes the effort today to continue to make a difference in the lives of others. Verl learns the first names of many of the children in our ward and goes out of his way to greet and talk with them regularly. At first, the children are surprised that an older man would even know their name, but his warm greeting makes them feel good. 
As a result of his kind heart and sweet spirit, all my children respect, admire, and love Brother Razband. From his fine example, my children now go out of their way to greet Verl before he can find them. His love is truly contagious. It's unlikely that any of us will be honored for our service, but recognition is not the reward. Our reward is blessing lives. Loving one another is not merely a suggestion or a good recommendation. It is a commandment. When we are obedient to this command, our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters are richly blessed. As we express our love through actions on behalf of our brothers and sisters, we set a good example to others of Christ-like service. BYU is a big place with many people moving in all directions. It sometimes may seem a difficult task to make a difference in the life of one of your fellow students, faculty, or staff members. I enjoy looking for examples of good works here on campus and see acts of brotherly kindness often. Two years ago, when I was appointed the Director of Athletics, I was touched by the many helping hands that were extended to my associates and me by brothers and sisters across campus. Words of encouragement, free time spent assisting us with our plans, extra effort afforded us to lighten our load and ensure us of a good start. As a result of their service to us, I now feel a strong camaraderie and a greater desire to do more to further build up our campus. One group of BYU students who I admire affectionately refers to each other as the Band of Brothers. The team's motto was inspired from the lines of Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Quote, We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Unquote. This year's members of the BYU football team have bonded to the cause of restoring tradition being honorable, and living by the Spirit. Skeptics were cynical concerning the rare approach of this team and their leader. How could there be enough time to prepare for a game day when weekly firesides are held on the eve of each game? Rough-and-tumble football players will get soft focusing on things of the Spirit instead of visualizing on-field violence. This band of brothers strives towards holding each other accountable for the good of the whole. Selfish motives are shelved in place of team objectives. The duty to represent not only each other, but BYU and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not just a part-time thing. When one falters, all are affected. When one succeeds, all will benefit. Coach Bronco Mendenhall and the team's leadership council have instituted what they call the Big Brother Program. Each younger player on the team is paired up with one of the upperclassmen. Each week, the big brother conducts an interview with his younger brother. They address such topics as academics, football, family, girlfriends, spirituality, and any other issue the two cares to discuss. Then the big brother writes a letter to Coach Mendenhall, sharing any thoughts, experiences, or concerns the two might have concerning each other, their team, or their teammates. The letters are confidential, 
some even sacred to Bronco. Privately then, Coach Mendenhall is able to assist his boys on their communication. What has developed within this year's team goes way beyond what is witnessed on the field of play. Like many of you here today, my life took further shape through my experiences as a student at BYU. Not only was I challenged physically and emotionally through athletics, I grew mentally and emotionally through the rigors of academics, and I was changed forever by the ever-present spirit that is often expressed through many brothers and sisters on our campus. I will be eternally grateful for the wonderful example of the best teacher I ever had, Joe Wood, a man more affectionately referred to by his students as Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe was a faculty member on campus who taught religion and history. When I arrived on the campus at BYU, I was not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was way out of my element in a very different culture, homesick for my family, and felt like a fish out of water. As weeks went by during my first semester on campus, I considered abandoning my hopes and dreams for BYU and returning to the friendly confines of my home. Somehow, someway, Uncle Joe saw something missing in me. He went out of his way to approach me after class and encourage me to stay strong. He reached out a hand of friendship, which I gladly accepted. He continued to look after me, and soon I looked forward to his class as the highlight of my day. He laughed and he smiled and even shed tears of gratitude. He called his students by their first names and often shook our hands. I grew to realize that he hadn't just taken a special interest in me. He made everyone in class feel special. The sweet spirit that radiated from Uncle Joe was what first softened my heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am grateful for all people on our campus like Uncle Joe who care enough to make a difference in the lives of their brothers and sisters. I love the spirit of our BYU students, your desire to be the best you can be, to educate and train yourselves towards becoming future family, community, and national leaders is impressive. Many of you have made the worthy choice to pause from your college education to serve full-time missions to our Lord. Truly, this is brotherly love in action, to seek out your brothers and sisters from all walks of life, from the four corners of the earth, who have been separated from the truth, to help lead them back to their Father in heaven, reminding them of the one great plan of salvation that leads to eternal life. Have I done any good in the world today? Then wake up and do something more than dream of your mansions above. Doing good is a pleasure, a joy beyond measure, a blessing of duty and love. It is my hope and prayer that we may serve our Lord by being actively engaged in blessing the lives of all our brothers and sisters and being an instrument in the hand of our Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Thomas A. Holmo, and now we'll hear from Patrick Kiron for his address, A More Wonderful World. As I prepared to address you, I've inevitably reflected 
on where I was and what had happened in my own life by the time I was your age. I was a very poor student at school and did not go to university. I'd been at boarding school in England from the age of 10 and spent countless hours just staring out of windows, reading magazines about aeroplanes and counting the days until I could go home, dreaming only of escape. Many of you here are in your early 20s, and I'm particularly aware that by that time in my life, I had lost my father, who died in a car accident in Arabia when I was 19. My sister also lost her husband that day, in the same accident, leaving her to raise their two young children in the aftermath of that devastating trauma. I experienced unspeakable grief, desperate loneliness, and an emptiness which felt like it would never leave. Thankfully, my big brother stepped in to take care of all of the practical issues which follow such a loss. He and my sisters led out in watching over our extraordinary mother. In the midst of it all, there were many who extended warm friendship and generous mentoring. Somehow life had to go on for the rest of us, and the love and care of others helped enormously. When I think of my father, amongst other treasured memories, I think of his favorite music, including the song, What a Wonderful World, made famous by the inimitable Louis Armstrong. I heard Lexi Walker sing her beautiful rendition of this a few weeks ago. The words are, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I see babies crying. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I love those lyrics. And they seem to sum up, in a way, a good portion of my dad's character and his outlook on life. I recollect his energy, kindness, and irrepressible warmth, and his love of the landscape, be it Arabia's arid deserts or England and Ireland's lush rolling hills, his passion for the skies, the sunshine, and the sea. I can clearly see his imprint on my own yearning to be outside, in the open, in the air, and in the sunshine. I know that my father would have done anything for me. He had demonstrated that many times throughout my young life. Favorite memories include when he taught me to drive as a nine-year-old in the Arabian desert. <laughs> With its wide open spaces and my father's gentle guidance, I remember his loving encouragement, his joyful view of the world and generous propensity to see and encourage the best in people. I realized, too, that he let me experience hard things, even leaving challenges in my path to prepare me for the life that he could see that I would lead. I know that he would have ensured that I had completed my education, but he was no longer there to make that happen. As I grew older, had he been there, he would have guided me in work choices, joyfully encouraging dating 
and been a fabulous grandfather when that time came. He would have continued to tell me about his life experiences, indirectly teaching me important lessons and principles. He would have done anything for me. And memories of my father continue to guide me. All these years later, I still dream, I feel, I hurt, and I do heal. Today, I hope to reinforce your own understanding of just how much you are adored in heaven and how joyful and fulfilling our path of discipleship on earth can be, as well as explore the fresh and much brighter outlook on repentance that President Nelson has asked us to embrace. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, will do anything for you. He wants nothing but your eternal happiness and success. You are being prepared for life, eternal life, and exaltation. You have an outline of the syllabus, but large pieces of the course have no textbook. The course requirements and the rubric are individually tailored to each of you, and because of the wisdom and omniscience of God, no two are alike. Your Father is eager for you to complete the course and return to Him, and to do so joyfully. The course He has created for you is entitled Discipleship, and the path of discipleship is your life's work. This will be your training ground where you will be proved and learn what you need to learn to make your way home, and it can sometimes feel like a test. President Henry B. Aring has said, the Lord doesn't put us through a test to give us a grade. He does it because the process will change us. You are fortunate to have been given the faith, strategies, and understanding through the Spirit to see the world as it really is, with all its wonder and beauty and eternal purpose. As you proceed, always remember that we are that we might have joy. That is, both joy here and joy eternally. So enjoy your onward journey on the path of discipleship and choose to be happy. <coughs> President Nelson has been guiding us with great care towards becoming better disciples, more Christ-like and more natural ministers. President Nelson, whom I'll quote extensively, is also preparing us to change our hearts in other ways. We're being encouraged to turn our homes into sanctuaries of faith and centers of gospel learning. He's inviting us to grow spiritually, to strengthen our faith in Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, and to deepen our own conversion to the Lord. Instead of thinking of repentance in terms of steps on a checklist, we can think of it as a condition, a state of being, a happy, peaceful way of life. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said that the path of discipleship is the only pathway where littering is permissible, even encouraged. In the early stages, the debris left behind includes the grosser sins of commission. Later, debris differs. Things begin to be discarded which have caused the misuse or underuse of our time and talent. As we litter the path of discipleship with our unwanted burdens, we will see that the path is also lined with beautiful gifts. 
we will pick up these gifts as we go, gifts of light, peace, joy, and other attributes of Christ. We need to be aware, to look for them, and to expect to find them. Think of this fresh understanding of repentance as the gift that it is. Think of it as a present wrapped in gleaming paper with a bright bow, but unopened. It is time to open it and receive the gift. As you take your next steps along the path of discipleship, let this new understanding and relationship with your Father and Savior shape your life. You can shape this wonderful world, or you can certainly shape your corner of it, and you will definitely see it differently. Wherever you've come from, whatever your background, you're enormously privileged. There are so many across the globe whose lives and situations are so much less than this. Our sisters and brothers suffer from poverty, oppression, injustice, war, and corruption, to name but a few of the conditions of this celestial world. As you set goals and make plans for your life, working to relieve the suffering and lift the burdens of others should be present in all your endeavors. These don't have to be grand acts. You may not be in a position to make a global impact, though some of you will, but all of you will be able to do your part in spreading light, hope, peace, joy, and love in your circles of influence, helping to make this a more wonderful world for more of God's children. There is a clear need for you to engage in public service. You can serve on school boards, charities, and in local and national governments. Build individuals and communities. Where appropriate, involve yourself in politics. Avoid the political tribalism and contempt, which has become so destructive across countries and continents. You can become an advocate for fairness in all corners of society. Your responsibility is to fulfill the Savior's charge to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and to feed his sheep. Determined to serve wholeheartedly in every ward or branch you may live in, plan now to serve a mission in your older years. There are no earthly medals for service and discipleship. Most of what we do in service to others will never be recognized or honored except by God who sees it all. So without medals, without honors, we follow the Savior and go about doing good in our families, in our communities, and in our nations. One more personal reflection as I conclude. By the age that most of you are today, I had not encountered the restored church of Jesus Christ. I was baptized at the age of 26. My friends and the missionaries had taught me how much my Heavenly Father loved me. And I knew that in my head, but I didn't begin to know it in my heart until I became a father myself several years later. It was then that I had my first real glimpse into how our Father feels about us, his children. The concept of infinite love only started to seem possible when I experienced the new and unimaginable love 
that enveloped me with the birth of our first child. Then I thought I couldn't ever feel that much love again until the next child arrived and I was once again overwhelmed by a love and a wonder I cannot begin to describe. And so it went with the birth of each successive child. At times, when our own children have hurt, I believe that I have felt more pain for them than I would have felt for myself. I have also experienced extraordinary joy out of all proportion to what might be considered our children's insignificant moments, expressions, or triumphs. And so it must be with our Father in heaven, only magnified beyond measure by his infinite and eternal love. Your Father in heaven will do anything for you, and he just wants you to return. Yes, there will be testing, but we are here to be changed refined and sanctified through our trying experiences, not to get a grade for how well we do. One day you will return to him in person because you have been every day returning to him in repentance. Through all that life may bring, trust and have faith in Jesus Christ's redeeming power and relish the path of discipleship in this wonderful world. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has taught us the following. I testify that no one of us is less treasured or cherished of God than another. I testify that he loves each of us. Insecurities, anxieties, self-image, and all. He doesn't measure our talents or our looks. He doesn't measure our professions or our possessions. He cheers on every runner, calling out that the race is against sin, not against each other. I know that if we will be faithful, there is a perfectly tailored robe of righteousness, ready and waiting for everyone. Robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. He is cheering you on. And the race is against sin, not against each other. Now you must go and help make this a more wonderful world for all of God's children. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Creating a Culture of Belonging. We've just heard from Patrick Kiron. After the break, we'll return with Philip D. Rash for Looking to the Margins, Creating Belonging. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Creating a Culture of Belonging. Next is Philip D. Rash, Assistant Dean of Undergraduate Education and the Director of the BYU Office of First Year Experience at the time of this address, 
titled Looking to the Margins, Creating Belonging. The BYU mission states that all instruction, programs, and services of BYU should make their own contribution towards the balanced development of the total person. The mission also contains the idea that at BYU, the full realization of human potential is pursued. Please keep those two important concepts in mind as we continue for a while. The balanced development of the total person and the full realization of human potential. Not long ago, BYU hosted a noted scholar on the topic of student success. Dr. Lori Schreiner and other scholars from across higher education have come to conceptualize the idea of college success in a way that reflects the broader, more comprehensive language found in our own mission statement. For Dr. Schreiner, success means students getting the most out of their college experience, being intellectually, socially, and psychologically engaged. In her definition, we find that idea of the balanced development of the total person. In a conversation with BYU administrators, Dr. Schreiner quoted a scripture found in John chapter 10, verse 10, several times in order to add spiritual context to her definition of student success. In this verse, Christ proclaimed that I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. An abundant life is certainly characterized by the development of the total person and the full realization of human potential, our potential to become like our Heavenly Parents. I truly believe that our Heavenly Father desires that we live an abundant life. I am equally convinced that the one who notes even the sparrow's fall desires that our time at BYU is a successful one. Furthermore, I believe that our Heavenly Father endorses the broad view of student success as previously described. We are so much more than a GPA and we are so much more than a grade on a term paper or final exam. An education at BYU is intended to help, now quoting from the aims of a BYU education, students integrate all parts of their university experience into a fundamentally sacred way of life. Heavenly Father wants us to live, work, and study, and to do so abundantly. Nevertheless, living an abundant life while a student at the university is not a given, and there are several elements that must be present in order for one to succeed and to live abundantly. One key factor, now widely recognized in the field of education, is whether or not an individual feels a sense of social belonging. Belonging is not simply having a place or even fitting in somewhere. Instead, belonging says that this place is my home, that I have a purpose here, that these people around me understand and accept me. It's a feeling that my community has my back and wants the best for me. Belonging has been described as a basic human need and its absence has been shown to affect our mood, our ability to cope with stress, our academic achievement, and even our immune system. Belonging is more than mere affiliation. Admission to BYU guarantees that a student will be allowed to affiliate with the university for four or more years. For employees, being hired at BYU guarantees that we get to come to work and receive compensation. As long as we show up and do a good job, we'll be all right. However, the guarantees end there. To help someone truly belong requires an intentional institutional effort as well as the cooperation of individuals of goodwill. Belonging summons the courage to confront our own prejudices and to challenge the assumptions we make about others. Belonging enlists those who are wise enough to just listen and humble enough to admit that they don't fully understand. The desire and ability to help another person belong at BYU, at church, in our apartments or in our neighborhoods is a characteristic of advanced discipleship. 
Perhaps the Apostle Paul was speaking of this idea when he wrote, There should be no schism in the body, but that members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. I think you'll agree that BYU is a fairly homogeneous place, as are the communities of Provo, Orem, and even faraway Springville. On campus, I am consistently surrounded by a majority of people who generally act like I do. I don't have to look very far to find someone who has shared similar life experiences, grown up in similar neighborhoods, raised in similar families, and have had similar educational opportunities. When I arrived as a student on campus in the early 1990s, these commonalities, shared with peers and professors alike, allowed me to feel comfortable very quickly, to make good friends, and establish long-term relationships, to communicate my needs, and to find the resources I needed to do my best. My path from affiliation to belonging was fairly quick, and although there were and continue to be hiccups along the way, the process has been relatively smooth. I would venture to guess that there are many here today who would say that their experience has been similar to mine. Of course, no one is identical to another human being in terms of experiences, beliefs, or behavior. However, for many of us, our commonalities facilitate a feeling of community and a sense of belonging. I would also venture to guess that there are individuals in this auditorium today who would say that they have not experienced Brigham Young University in the same way. They may look like me or they might not. They might affiliate with me or they might not. Unfortunately, I predict that there are individuals who, for a variety of reasons, have never felt like they truly belong here. In fact, in my conversations with students, faculty, and staff, a number of our brothers and sisters feel like they live on the periphery or on the margins of the BYU experience. I recognize that this might be difficult for some of us to believe when compared to our own experience at the university and elsewhere. After all, some might say BYU is a very welcoming place. The students and staff are generally friendly and even kind. The grounds are gorgeous, and we have clubs and sports and many resources. Maybe those who feel like they don't belong simply aren't trying hard enough. However, I'm afraid that this attitude ignores the complexity of what we refer to as marginality, the idea that there are those who, for many different reasons and life circumstances, find themselves on the margin of a given group or community. We aren't speaking about mere reticence or simply reluctance on the part of individuals. Often the factors that place and keep individuals on the margins or on the periphery of a given community are extremely complex and usually have very deep sociological and historical roots. Therefore, when we are tempted to respond to the idea that some of our brothers and sisters remain on the sidelines by saying they just need to try harder, we necessarily encounter the warning given by King Benjamin when he said, Perhaps thou shalt say the man has brought upon himself his misery. Therefore I will stay my hand, for his punishments are just. But I say unto you, O man, whosoever doeth this, the same hath great cause to repent. And except he repenteth, he perisheth forever, and hath no interest in the kingdom of God. Now we know that King Benjamin was talking about refusing those who are severely economically disadvantaged, about beggars to be precise. Nevertheless, there is an important parallel in terms of, our, of the response that we have when we are made aware that someone in our community does not feel fully accepted. After all, what did King Benjamin say? Are we not all beggars? Have we not all, at some point in our lives, felt like we didn't belong? I'm confident that it wouldn't take long for the majority of us to remember a time in our lives 
when we felt like a stranger or an outsider looking in. Probably not to the same extent as some of our brothers and sisters, but perhaps in personally significant ways. Throughout the Old Testament, the children of Israel were repeatedly commanded that certain groups of people were to be extended special care. These groups included the poor and oppressed, widows and orphans, and strangers. When the Lord revealed his law to the prophet Moses, he commanded, Thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I think it would be unfair and inaccurate for me to compare my experiences of not belonging to those whose cultural or racial identity, gender, socioeconomic status, or sexual orientation have placed them on the margins of society for hundreds, even thousands of years. Nevertheless, the Lord's use of those words, ye know the heart of a stranger, was designed to activate in holy empathy within all of us. It's like he's speaking to me saying, Phil, you know what it feels like to not belong. Remember seventh grade at East Minico Junior High School? That, brothers and sisters, was my Egypt. I'm 50 years old, and I still remember the sting of that awkward and painful episode of my life. How we respond as a university community and how I personally respond to those on the margins has weighed heavily upon my mind for quite a while. I believe we can and should do better. More importantly, I believe that I can and I should do better. My relationship with a God who asked me to show my love for Him by loving my neighbor depends upon it. Likewise, I believe that my discipleship and personal ministry should largely be defined by it. Fortunately, our loving Heavenly Father provided us a perfect model to follow in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Even though none of us will be able to walk His path perfectly, we are nevertheless called to emulate Him in His works. When the Savior visited the inhabitants of this continent, He taught many sacred and important things. In 3 Nephi we read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, This is my gospel, and ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. What the Savior did with the people in the land bountiful provides us with a very robust blueprint for discipleship. He blessed, healed, taught, instituted the sacrament, and he prayed with and for others. Additionally, the New Testament allows us to witness other acts performed by the Savior that we are likewise commanded to emulate. So, who were the marginalized that Jesus encountered, and how did he respond and relate to them? Just for one, there was the woman at Jacob's well. And there were many reasons why Jesus, being a Jewish man, should never have engaged her in conversation. First of all, she was a Samaritan, an ethnic group considered to be heretical and unclean by the Jews of the day. Secondly, she was also a woman whose social status was not on equal footing with men. Additionally, she had been divorced multiple times, and at the time of her encounter with the Savior, she was living with a man who was not her husband. How did Jesus act towards her, and what do we see Jesus do in this story? I urge you to read the entire account found in John chapter 4, but to briefly summarize. What started with a strategic request for water, Christ asked her for a drink, ended with the Messiah revealing his true identity as well as the essence of his mission to this woman of Samaria, who, in turn, proclaimed her witness of Jesus' divinity to her entire community. Also, we often recall almost offhandedly that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Who were publicans, and what makes time spent with them so remarkable? From my limited understanding of the subject, publicans were contract employees of Rome. 
They collected revenue, including taxes, from the people on behalf of the government of the day. Because they worked for Rome, they were considered to be traitors to the Jewish people. Apparently, some publicans inflated taxes for their own benefit, used extortion and fraud to get more money than they were owed, and others may have used force and brutality in their work. For these reasons, they were hated, especially by the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. How did Jesus respond to the pharisaical criticism that ensued after he shared a meal with publicans and with others of ill repute? Consider for a moment that it was during one of these meals, and we can read about that dinner in Luke chapter 15, that the Lord taught three beautiful and inspiring parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the immensely powerful parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps one of the greatest demonstrations of Christ's ministry to the marginalized is found in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus sees a publican named Matthew sitting at work one day and bids him to follow me. Matthew the publican, from a class of men despised by the Jews, left his post to follow Jesus and was later numbered with the original twelve apostles. Jesus ministered to all types of marginalized individuals, including lepers, prostitutes, adulterers, the demon-possessed, and Roman soldiers. Even while upon Golgotha's agonizing cross, the one innocently and heroically bearing all sin and human frailty mercifully ministered to a contrite thief being crucified next to him for his crimes. So then what do we see Christ do with the marginalized? As previously mentioned, he ate with them. He walked with them, he cried with them, he healed them, he validated them, and he listened to them. Most importantly, Christ taught everyone the doctrine of his Father, the doctrine of ultimate liberation, that in him and through him alone we are made free from the bondage of sin and death, and that in him we overcome all things. I believe it is also critical for us to remember that Christ himself lived on the margins and that Christ's own marginalized status was intentional and foretold by the ancient prophets. Isaiah prophesied, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our face from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Perhaps Christ had to live a life of marginalization and rejection because the Father knew that those two things would be both pervasive and painful to many of his children during mortality. Christ's mission, according to Alma, was to go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled which saith, He will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. If we are to do what the Savior did, we probably want to ask ourselves, who are the marginalized today, and what should be my response to them? Time will not permit us to list every group that currently experiences or who have historically experienced marginalization. Unfortunately, those ministered to by the Savior might still encounter many of the same attitudes and prejudices in our day. Although Christ ministered to those deemed by society to be broken or defective in his time, the terms broken or defective cannot be applied to those standing on the periphery of belonging and inclusion today. Marginality does not mean to be less than. 
even if people existing on the margins have been wrongly treated as such throughout history. It is also important to understand that membership in a community that has historically endured pervasive marginalization and even oppression doesn't mean that all members of that community consider themselves marginalized. I mention this only because it would be wise following this devotional for us to approach someone and say, hey, Brother Rash says that you might feel marginalized at BYU. That's probably not the best approach. So what do we do? Perhaps we begin by opening ourselves up to the idea that there are, in reality, people who feel as though they do not fully belong at the university, in our wards, in our residence halls, and in our neighborhoods. They may not act downtrodden and sad or angry. However, it is important for us to remember that not everyone experiences BYU, Provo, the United States, or even the Church in the same way. It is also important to acknowledge that history often leaves deep and enduring scars. Age-old prejudice against racial and ethnic minorities, against the poor, against women, and against our LGBT or same-sex attracted brothers and sisters has left abiding scars. Similarly, religious differences continue to engender deep division and hatred even within families. President Dallin H. Oaks reminded Latter-day Saints that as we look to the future, one of the most important effects of the revelation of the priesthood is this divine call to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. Racism is probably the most familiar source of prejudice today, and we are called to repent of that. But throughout history, many groups of God's children are or have been persecuted or disadvantaged by prejudices, such as those based on ethnicity or culture, nationality or education, or economic circumstances. As servants of God who have the knowledge and responsibility of His great plan of salvation, we should hasten to prepare our attitudes and our actions, institutionally and personally, to abandon all personal prejudices. At BYU, the vast majority of us share a common Church membership, as well as common religious beliefs and practices. However, we must always remember that some among us do not. And even though many of us share a common Church membership, there are different ways of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when my sense of orthodoxy confronts your sense of orthodoxy, there is a potential for misunderstanding and judgment. Consider just a simple example. When my sense of orthodoxy allows for watching TV on Sunday and the orthodoxy of my roommates does not, there is a risk that I may be placed on the periphery of that small community of roommates. Now let's consider a more significant example. There are men and women who, for a number of reasons, have not served and may never serve a full-time mission, and they exist day-to-day in a virtual sea of those who have. The accounts of their pain at the attitudes conversations and judgment of others, even by the well-intention, have broken my heart. Let's not add to their potential burden through thoughtlessness, judgment, or abandonment. Let's also not forget that there are brothers and sisters all around us whose faith in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is failing or has perhaps already failed. A crisis of faith or a loss of spiritual identity is a tremendously disorienting and frightening experience. Perhaps our response to those in crisis might be crafted through the lens of what we now refer to as ministry, a newer, holier approach to caring discipleship. Instead of working to bring about an immediate change in belief, behavior, or attitude, we can listen with love and seek to understand, always ready as Peter counseled to give an answer to every man that asketh, a reason of the hope that is in you 
with meekness and in fear. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus sat down to dinner with the chief Pharisee. Christ used that opportunity to teach the following lesson. When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. In other words, as disciples, we don't just spend our time with those who are just like us or those with whom we are already comfortable. We spend our time with those whose life experiences and beliefs and customs are different from our own. When I read this scripture, I immediately thought of the recent forum address given by Brian Stevenson, who taught us about the power of proximity, being with those who are different from us and those who might even challenge us. As we who are disciples venture to the margins and invite others in from the periphery to a place of belonging and abundance, we will surely stumble and trip over ourselves. We have to be all right with a little stumbling. We ask for patience and understanding because this is only the beginning of important conversations. The important thing is that we try. We acknowledge that there really is a margin and that some people have lived on that margin for a very long time. We acknowledge that history leaves scars. We rid ourselves of prejudice and withhold judgment. We listen with love and understanding and we activate that holy empathy by recalling how we too were once strangers in the land of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, if it all seems unattainable or overwhelming, remember the words of our Redeemer spoken to the prophet Joseph Smith. Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world. And you are of them that my Father hath given me, and none of them that my Father hath given me shall be lost. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Creating a Culture of Belonging with thoughts from Thomas A. Holmo, Patrick Kieron, and Philip D. Rash. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.